Dr. R.J. Rushduni, R.R. 130 A.D. 55, Marriage and Man, 7th Commandment, Genesis, Gen 2, verses 16-20. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 20, Marriage and Man. God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help me for him. We have begun the study of the Seventh Commandment, the meaning of marriage and the meaning of the violation of the laws of marriage. And first of all, we have been considering marriage, this week marriage in man, then marriage in woman, and so on, and then to the laws regulated it. According to Scripture, man can only be understood in terms of God and his sovereign purpose in man's creation. And according to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, God created man in his own image, that is, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion. And he created him to exercise dominion over the earth and to subdue it. The commandment, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, is an aspect of man's call to exercise dominion over the earth. Man thus is to be understood in terms of God's kingdom. Man is called to manifest God's law order over a progressively developed and subdued earth. Man is thus a religious creature. Man can only be understood properly by reference to his calling, his creation. Adam's calling and man's calling thus had two aspects, both can be summed up in terms of work. The first, the practical aspect, the care of eating, dressing, and caring for it. Dressing means tilling. Even in paradise, the trees needed pruning, they needed care, they needed tilling, the vegetables needed attention, so there was work in paradise. Second, there was the cognitive aspect, or knowledge. Adam was called by God to name the creatures, as we have pointed out previously, in the Bible, in particular in the Old Testament, to name means to classify, to understand, to describe, so that this was a scientific, a cognitive calling. By work and knowledge, man was called to subdue the earth and to develop it. Man was required to extend his dominion geographically as well as in knowledge by increasing and multiplying. Man's calling, therefore, can be termed work, both practical, down-to-earth work and knowledge. Both can be summed up as work. Any vocation, therefore, whereby man extends his dominion under God, 
and to God's purpose and develops the earth and subdues it is a holy calling, a godly vocation. It is extremely wrong. It is anti-biblical to speak of a holy calling as the ministry or the priesthood, as is commonly done in both Protestant and Catholic circles. This is a violation of Scripture. Every calling whereby man works to extend his dominion over the natural world and to subdue it and to develop it under God is a holy calling. Thus, any area of production, whether it be the retailing end or the producing end, is a holy calling when exercised under God. Moreover, according to Scripture, man was created not as a child, but as a mature man in terms of mature responsibility. Therefore, according to biblical psychology, man is not to be understood by reference to child psychology or animal psychology, but with reference to mature responsibility. As a result, Whenever a man is interpreted in terms of anything other than mature responsibility, that psychology is destructive of man. Again, there is a radical destructiveness to any meaningless or frustrating work. Since man was created to assume responsibility in terms of work, in any social order, which penalizes work, as our social order does, and rewards the drone, has therefore a destructive effect, a penalizing effect on the working, the knowing man. Now as we analyze our scripture, certain things appear. Man was required to know himself first in terms of his calling before he was given his help need to eat. Adam worked for an undefined but a very long period of time first. After all, even a rough and a general classification of the natural world takes time. So Adam was very obviously a bachelor for some years. Now, as we analyze the significance of this passage, we find that first of all, Adam was given Eve, not in fulfillment of a natural or simply sexual need, although this is recognized in our text, but after delay, in fulfillment of his need for a helpmeet in terms of his calling, a helper to him in his life and work under God as God's covenant man. Thus, second, it means that the role of the woman is to be a helper in man's governmental function, that is, to exercise dominion. Man's calling is the kingdom of God, to exercise dominion over the earth under God. And woman's creation and calling is in terms of it also to be man's helper in this function. Third, God only created Eve and gave her to man, to Adam, after Adam had proved himself responsible by discharging his duties faithfully and well for some period of time. As a result, it makes clear that responsibility is a prerequisite to marriage for man. This is why later on the dowry system came into being. A man had to accumulate a dowry roughly equivalent to three years labor, a capital, which he presented to the bride as the dowry to establish the marriage and give her security in the event that something happened to him in the future. Fourth, the family is a central aspect of man's dominion. It is there that he exercises his authority and his teaching function to bring about the 
covenant family as a central aspect of the kingdom of God. Fifth, marriage thus is clearly of divine ordination and was instituted together with man's calling to work and to know in paradise. Sixth, marriage is the normal state for man. God declared it is not good that the man should be alone. And Jesus Christ declared in Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12, that marriage was the responsibility of all mature men unless they were physically incapacitated or had a calling to remain single. Seventh, we must say that while the family is a part of man's calling, it is not its totality. Whereas a woman's calling is in terms of her husband and family, but a man in terms of his work under God. Eighth, before marriage, man had to show two things, the pattern of obedience to God and the pattern of responsibility. And therefore, marriage involves a break. Therefore, says verse 24, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. There is change which is necessary for progress and for growth. He breaks through the old home, not breaking as far as love and affection is concerned, but he establishes a new area of authority. This makes for development and progress. Ninth, it is interesting to examine the Hebrew word for bridegroom. It means the circumcised. And for mother-in-law and father-in-law, he or she who circumcised. Now, of course, this does not refer to the literal operation because all Hebrew males, according to the law, were circumcised after birth on the eighth day. What it does refer to is a spiritual fact. That is, the mother-in-law and the father-in-law were the ones who circumcised in that they checked thoroughly into the young man to make sure that he was spiritually of the covenant, that he was a mature, a responsible person, a believing man. And hence, they were called the circumcisers in that they checked on the reality of his profession, of his faith. And hence, we have here the beginning of the principle of no mixed marriages. Marriage is thus closely linked with the covenant, with faith. The Catholic marriage service concludes with a blessing after the marriage mass which invokes the Old Testament covenant formula and I think is very beautiful and fitting for the marriage service. And it reads, May the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob be with you. And may he fulfill in you his blessing so that you may see your children's children to the third and fourth generation and afterward possess everlasting and boundless life. Through the help of our Lord Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns God forever and ever. Finally, marriage is the ordained sexual relationship between man and woman, but, as our scripture makes clear, marriage cannot be understood simply in terms of sex. When marriage is reduced to sex, marriage disintegrates and amoral sex replaces it. Marriage is all things else must be understood in terms of God. And man especially is to be understood in terms of God and God's calling to work or to work in knowledge. Wherever there is frustration in terms of man's calling, the result is poor health for man physically, mentally, and sexually. He no longer has the ability to rest. It is of interest when you talk to very old men who work 
and there a day years ago, ten and twelve hours a day. But they had no trouble in those days when it came to resting. They relaxed readily and easily when they were through working, and they slept well. Why? Because in those days before World War I, it was an age when man had a sense of optimism, a belief in progress. The world was moving forward. God's dominion was being extended everywhere. And so in this confidence, they felt a satisfaction in their work, and they could rest when they put down their work. But any dislocation in man's calling is a dislocation of his total life because man cannot be reduced to anything other than that to which God called him. And just as marriage cannot be reduced to sex nor to love, however important these are, but must be understood in terms of God's law as the essential bond, so man cannot be understood in terms of himself or of his love for his wife or anything other than God's calling. And the thing that is prior to a man in his life is not his wife nor his children, but work. This is of God's creation. And this is the tragedy of an apostate age when man's work no longer has meaning. The women can see clearly the futility in what man is doing. But too often, man's reaction as things are futile around him is to work all the harder. And when it is carried to the nth degree, work becomes a substitute in man's life for religion. Work is his way of accomplishing things. This is of God's doing. But when work becomes futile, men tend to work harder to try somehow to undo it. It is man's answer to all his problems, his way to dominion, his way to problem solving. And so men are unable to rest in an age when work has no meaning. And women become aware of the futility of work but men are unwilling to admit it. It is their life. And so this is one of the tragedies of an apostate age, what it does to men. Work is no longer an answer since the world of work has moved out from under God. Long ago, Dostoevsky, as he described his experiences in Siberia about a century and a quarter ago, said that it was not hard labor which destroyed the conflict. In fact, the hard labor could be very healthy. Were they building a fort or a building? Well, they could be worked from sunup until sundown. And they could get strong and healthy doing that work, no matter how much they were driven, as long as they were fed well. But, if the guards wanted to destroy the men, all they needed to do was to set them to useless work, moving a pile of boulders from one side of the prison yard to the other, and then back again. And no matter how slowly the men worked, the meaninglessness of it shattered the men in a very short time. It broke them completely. And this is what meaningless work does. And of course, this is what socialism does, because it progressively renders men meaningless. Because there is no dominion in work apart from God and his law order, apart from meaning. One of the things that characterized the Industrial Revolution, of course, was the development of factors. And one of the interesting and rather touching sidelights of that revolution was the jarring effect on men. Why? 
After a while, they got adjusted to it and they had a greater sense of dominion because they could produce more. But it destroyed the factory in the home, the workshop in the home. And this is hard on men. There was a delight that men had and still have in some parts of the world of having their tools under their roof. And if you go today to certain parts of Europe, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, or Scotland, into the country areas, uh, the men have a special pride in having their tools under their roof with them because they identify so strongly with their tools. I was interested last night when we were at a welcome home party for a doctor who's just been to Europe. And what did he do when he left for Europe for his vacation? He took his little black bag with him in spite of all the teasing. And the high point of the trip for him was he had a chance to use that little black bag. This is how strongly a man identifies with his work. And this is why it is so necessary that a man's work be firmly under God. Because work under God is man's life. And man is best understood in terms of it. Therefore, in our days, the tragedy is that both men and work have moved out from under God with a shattering effect upon society and upon marriage. There is no hope for society unless society again is under God. Then men again will find themselves and their marriages and their work will show forth the glory there is in man's life when it is under God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us to know ourselves in terms of thee and of thy calling, to find our place in thy law order, and to exercise dominion under thee, to extend thy kingdom from pole to pole to subdue and develop the earth according to thy work. And we pray, our Father, that thou wouldst enable us by thy grace to summon men and nations again to thy word and to thy law order, that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Bless us to this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson. Yes. times the engagement was the real service. The engagement in biblical times was the getting together of the young man and very often his parents with the parents of the bride-to-be. And at that time the terms of the marriage were settled. First, they examined him thoroughly as to his faith and character. And, of course, usually they knew a great deal about him. It was a stable society. But nonetheless, they satisfied themselves on that point. And then the next point, the dower. Uh, if he did not have it, which was often the case, well, when would he have it? Then it was settled. They were man and wife, even though they didn't live together, say, for a year or two years or three, until he accumulated the dowry. But it was a contract and a divorce was necessary if that were broken. So while they never lived together, the engagement was the marriage 
sistema né? well a Levite usually came in and ratified it yes and there was a great deal of uh, ceremony in the way of banqueting then later with the actual wedding there would be a big feast but the actual service was at the engagement now in the uh, Christian church this system carried over for a long time and it's only broken down gradually in recent centuries although in medieval Europe the whole thing became paganized and it was the bride parents who gave the dowry to the young man which perverted and destroyed the whole thing in which case which still prevails in Europe the young man went shopping around for the uh, girl who had the most money which destroyed the whole purpose of the biblical system which was that the man had to prove himself responsible the in the Christian uh, service it was basically a religious service it was between the families and it was in the church the civil aspect a civil contract came in uh, a couple of centuries ago so now it is a three-way contract it is a personal contract rather than a family contract it is a religious contract and it is a uh, civil contract and this is what the vows are about uh, when the couple takes the vows uh, they're ratifying a contract first they go to the county clerk's office and they get a contract which is filed with the contract to the county so that's the contract with the state a civil contract that the two enter in together with the state because the state has a state in stable and secure homes second they take the vows to god the first vow in the ceremony is taken to god that's the religious contract the third the personal i john take thee mary uh with one another does that answer yes another question yes We'll come to that next week when we deal with Eve, but I, I, I'll just say this, uh, don't be too hard on Eve, because after all, Adam was still in charge, and he chose to go along. So uh, we can't pass the buck there. This is exactly, of course, what Adam and Eve did. When Adam was confronted by God, he said, not my fault, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me is your fault. You gave her to me did give me an eye to eat and of course she didn't uh, take the responsibility either which was of course the product of their sin
touch on that next week also. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, this is an old, old custom. There had to be uh, the bands published, that is, an announcement of marriage. Uh, I believe originally it was three months. Yes. Uh, then it was reduced uh, to three announcements. But I believe originally, centuries ago, the bands had to be uh, published in church three months. And the service, I may add, was originally at the conclusion of a church service, so that there would be the regular morning worship, and at the conclusion of the worship, the couple would come forward to be married before the whole congregation. And the purpose of uh, publishing the bands that way was, of course, uh, first of all, the contract had to be ratified in the church that had been made between the couple and then to make sure that there were no objections, that uh, there were no liabilities on the part of either, that they had not entered into any contract or uh, illicit relationship with somebody else. So it was a part of the fact that the marriage involved the community and everyone in the congregation was present at the service. It was not by invitation. And I think there's a great deal in favor of that. What was that? Yes, right. In both churches, it had to be. Yes. that would have been the case. Yes. and 
religious leadership. And of course, in this respect, most men nowadays have been failures. Yes. Yes, a very interesting point. Uh, the breach of promise suit, of course, has been dropped by law in recent years, and it was something of a fraud in the 20s and 30s when it was being uh, used because the old relationship was gone. But uh, the breach of promise suit has its origin in the background that this was a real contract, that there was a real... Uh, transfer of property being negotiated. Very often the father would add a dowry. Now the old American custom for generations in this country was that the uh, bride's father added to what the uh, young man brought by giving, and this was always the basic part, as far as they possibly could, a heifer. So there would be milk for the new family. So that... Uh, she was endowed with a heifer. Last night I heard one doctor report of uh, his uh, mother's dowry, I believe it was. It included uh, a team of oxen, a logging chain eight feet long, and uh, several other things. So she had a good dowry. Yes. themselves out. 
Now, I have a book that's just come out. I haven't seen it yet. I got the letter from my publisher saying it's in the mail. The Myth of Overpopulation. When I wrote that, uh, I dealt with this matter of what welfare does to population. And I dealt in particular with the Negroes. I went back to the pre-Civil War census figures and the post-Civil War census figures. In the pre-Civil War period, there were three Negroes, both in the North and in the South. And in spite of the fact that every year the number of free Negroes increased because there were more set free. So it was not just those who were already free, but new freedmen. They could not reproduce. Their birth rate was that low. Whereas the slave Negroes were uh, revealing a very high birth rate. Why? Because slavery is a welfare society. Now, when the uh, emancipation took place, the birth rate overall for Negroes began to drop rapidly, very rapidly, so that by 1920, the Negroes were percentage-wise lower in ratio to the general American population than they were in 1860. In other words, they could not hold their own in a free society. They were becoming a diminishing factor. They were breeding themselves out. Well, of course, what has happened since the New Deal has been a skyrocketing birth rate among them because of welfare, which is a return to slavery. Slavery being a welfare society of, of sorts. So what was happening throughout the centuries to Western European man was that there was a progressive genetic improvement precisely because the worst element was breeding out. And now the reverse has been taking place for a couple of generations. You can get this in my book. Yes. No, we dealt with slavery earlier uh, as an inferior way of life, but slavery is a reality of history. You either have slavery to individuals, personal ownership, or state ownership. Yes. Yes, there were abuses in slavery, but they've been grossly exaggerated, and by and large, the Negroes increased and flourished under slavery, and they showed it in their birth uh, records to a degree they did not flourish from 1865 to 1920 or 30 approximately. So they prospered under slavery just the way they're prospering now. But that's the weakness of slavery. It is a welfare society. Now, it's a better welfare society, I would say, than socialism and communism. But it is basically a welfare society. Mm -hmm. No, there is no blanket condemnation of slavery. It is presented as an inferior way of life, and the believer is to avoid it. You have been bought with a price, therefore be not you the slaves of them. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. Here's another myth that's been uh, extensively propagated about the Southerners being so pro-slavery. Uh, one out of 18 Southerners owned slaves. The other 17 hated slavery. 
They resented it. The only reason why the South did not abolish slavery, there was only one state in the South that was genuinely pro-slavery, South Carolina. Now that's a matter of extensive documentation. But the only reason the other uh, states did not abolish slavery, even though they discussed it more than once, was what will we do with them after we free them? And had some workable solution come about to resettle them elsewhere, it would have been welcomed by the Southerners. During the Civil War, there actually was a measure that passed Congress, went to Lincoln, and he signed it to resettle all the Negroes elsewhere uh, perhaps in some of the Caribbean islands to be purchased or somewhere else at the conclusion of the war. Now, as I say, this actually uh, passed and was signed by Lincoln and was supposed to have become a matter of law to be operative after the war, but whether it was by design or by accident, it was not sealed with the official seal, so this rendered it null and void. And before anything more could be done, Lincoln had been assassinated. Right. The, there were a sizable number of Negroes, first of all, who were free. There were a sizable number of free Negroes in the South who were slave owners. Now, this you don't get very often, but many of the Negroes who were freed in the South uh, were men who were part white. They uh, were often the illegitimate uh, son or child of the owner, and he would free them. And they often had the intelligence of their fathers and became very successful and very, very wealthy slave owners. Now, uh, this is a fact that is left out. But those one out of 18 slave owners in the South included a fair number of Negroes. Well, why don't they now start suing their own people on that? The whole thing, of course, is a fraud from start to finish. Uh, one of the interesting things I turned up this last week, now, during the abolitionist days, one of the most eloquent women speaking against slavery was a colored woman, Sojourner Truth. And she was a very godly woman and a very remarkable woman. The story of Sojourner Truth is quite an amazing one. And she had had her children, most of them, I think she had uh, oh, about a dozen or so children, sold out from under her, and her back was scarred from whipping. And she was one of the most eloquent speakers against slavery throughout the North. But there was a joker there that they didn't tell people. She had been a slave in New York. And you don't get that in the books today, like Land of the Free and other such books, when they speak of Sojourner Truth. She was a northern slave. Our time is really up, but one or two questions. Yes. That's very, very true. The, as the war progressed and the radical Republicans became uh, more and more bent on abolishing slaves, and uh, one of the radical Republican congressmen from Pennsylvania, William Darrell Kennedy, Kelly, made the statement, like it or not, the Negro is the coming man in America. In other words, everything that you have today in the civil rights program, they were talking about and they were going to ram it down the throats of people. In New York, a fearful riot broke out. 
first against the draft and second against the Negroes. And for several days, uh, uh, all New York was uh, uh, characterized by rioting and looting and mass murder of Negroes of, of the most brutal sort, vicious. And uh, there was this sort of thing throughout the North, throughout the war. So uh, you rarely get the true story of uh, events of the day. And when what you get is an anti-Southern uh, diatribe normally. One last question, yes. by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.